Hello and welcome to the 21st Century Leadership Podcast. I'm Brett Sadler and in this series I'm exploring how leaders need to respond to the challenges and changes of our times. For over a year now I've been recording conversations with top leaders and leadership thinkers and throughout this series we'll be delving ever deeper into some of the profound shifts that are going to shape the new leadership landscape in the years ahead. Last time we looked at the changing geopolitical picture with Pippa Malmgren and Chris Lewis. Now we're going to find out what the biggest consultancy firm in the world is actually doing to adapt to these shifts. As I walked into PwC's London headquarters to meet with their UK chairman, Kevin Ellis, one of the first things that I saw was a signpost to their wellbeing centre and contemplation room. I knew this was not going to be any ordinary company. So listen in as Kevin outlines some of the many changes they've made to take a lead in building a bridge to the future. And what was his New Year's resolution? So you're a PwC lifer. You joined yep. in 1984 as a graduate yeah. trainee. Was it That's called? right, yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, and you've worked your way up through the system, kind of classical career progression. So t- tell me a little bit about some of the things that you've learned on that journey. Um, yeah, well, I suppose, uh, like a lot of people, I came here really... Uh, to get qualified to kind of and then pursue a career in business of some sort or other I hadn't really got a very structured career plan and if I'm frank in my 34 years here I've never had a structured career plan because one of the great things about an organization like ours is it never says exactly as it is on a tin so you get asked to go and work on a client assignment the client assignment normally kind of morphs into something else Mm -hmm. And what the assignment says it is and what you're doing for the client isn't necessarily identical to your learning experience. So you'd learn, say, about leadership on an assignment when you're trying to solve a client problem. You'd learn about motivating a team when you're working on an assignment where something goes wrong and everyone has to work through the night, three nights running. So effectively, the leadership attributes that I think build a good leader are really well honed in an environment like ours, which is a matrix-led organisation with many different skill groups, many, many different backgrounds. Um, I think enabling you to learn on the job as well as in the classroom, but more importantly, to learn from others and often learning from the very best and even learning from others who don't do it as well. Yeah. So you kind of learn things you don't want to morph into or you don't want to replicate. So I think that's one of the great things. And this is a team-led organization. So quite regularly, in the course of one year, you could actually be in a very deep, close relationship with 30 different teams on 30 different clients. And all of those experiences will be very, very different. So again, in terms of network building, it's phenomenal both in terms of client relationships, but also in terms of internal relationships. Because, again, we're an organisation in the UK that employs 20,000 people, average age of 28, and every year 4,000 people join us, and every year that 4,000 people leave us. So my alumni network is over 65,000. But more importantly, I've worked with a huge number of those, as will anyone else that's been here for as many years as I have, because you're in and out of these teams all the time which creates kind of hugely high quality relationship building, network building and learning and also a phenomenal network at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I agree with what you say about learning from the best and from the worst. And t- 
to me, that's very often the, the biggest learning is seeing people doing it really badly wrong. Uh, and I, from my experience, I think the bad bosses that I have had have really taught me more about leadership than the good ones. Um, can you give me some examples without naming names, obviously, of some real howlers that you've come across? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, fun enough, um, after I've been in the firm for about four or five years, I moved into insolvency. And working in insolvency for 20 years, I did see some howlers in terms of management errors that either caused organisations to destroy value or to lose talent. So probably most of my experience of I don't know, howlers, I think probably being kind of the first line of defence for either the creditors or the debtors supporting a company going through change. And if you're going through change, everything starts from the top. So, you know, I remember working with a very, very uh, uh, value-destroying people business. And the reason it was in trouble, it was hemorrhaging people. And, you know, it was a, you know, you could honestly say that famous line that, you know, this was a company whose assets go home in the lift at night, go down the lift at night. And so, therefore, holding on to people was critical. And they, at the time, were led by a CEO who was hugely intellectual. Um, and... Um, completely introverted so he hardly left his office so at the time you were inspiring people going through change and their name was in the paper all the time and there was a lot of speculation about whether they were going to survive and get the fundraising you didn't have anyone pressing the flesh or talking to the people or inspiring the people or giving them a reason to stay so I remember advising uh, the people that had most of the value tied up in this business was actually the bank that the best thing they could do is change the CEO, not because he was incompetent, but he had the wrong skill set for that moment in time for that organisation. Mm. And the person we appointed in this place was a kind of completely diametrically opposed to this individual. I mean, he was high profile, loud, gregarious, one of the lads, really. But more importantly, he was someone that everyone wanted to follow and felt they knew. So at the time you're trying to hold on to talent that literally goes down the lift at night, you had to have a management or a leader that people identified with and wanted to come back up in the lift in the morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we were talking about this at, at lunchtime. Um, the, to pick up on the first point about him being behind the desk all the time, was that that's one of the challenges of leadership at the moment is that there's so much technology, so much information that it's easy to get suckered into that and you can't lead an organisation from behind a computer screen. No, I tell you, I think my kind of kind of rule of thumb is whatever I think I need to communicate, I need to communicate probably three to five times as much. So whatever I think the level of communication I need to do, I've got to kind of effectively, you know, three to five times more to get the message out there. And quite often you've said the same thing to the same audience and you still get a question as if they heard it for the first time. Now, it's not because people don't listen, but people don't necessarily absorb. Because, again, the same technology that's holding you behind a desk distracts your audience when they're listening. And particularly for an organization as young as ours, average age of 28, people have been bought up on mobile phones more than we were. Yeah. And therefore, they are constantly distracted. So not only have you got to capture them, you've got to capture them and hope they're absorbing the message. And that's why you have to use many different forms of communication. But sometimes you've got to strip it back as bare as possible to get the message across. So one of our most successful modes of communication at the moment is what we call our town halls, where 
literally will have it in front of the cafe outside with no slides or anything else, literally just chairs in a huddle. Me standing in front of the kitchen area, answering questions for an hour that we live stream around our 25 offices and people can pick up at home if they're working from home or working from clients' site. And we'll regularly get 3,000 live viewings, sometimes as high as seven. Mm -hmm. And then on catch-up, we'll probably double that. So you're actually reaching nearly half the employees of the organization in an informal Q&A. And again, because it's low in a way, although it's high-tech in terms of sharing, it's low-tech in terms of presentation, it lands better in this world we're in now. Yeah, and I think what's important about that is that in doing it in that way, you're getting across more than just information. You know, people can, can see you, yeah. they can see your values coming through. In, in Yeah, it's really interesting. The, the line, I, I mean, two things on that one. So I did this two weeks ago, and there's a lot of stuff going on in our industry. We're in the press all the time. There's a lot of media speculation, a lot of political speculation about the big four and everything else. And we talked yeah. quite openly and discussed all that. Um I happened to tell two stories in answer to questions. One was, what's your favorite tube line? Um, Jubilee, don't ask why I said that, but that's what I said. <laughs> and the other one was, um, what was my New Year's resolution? Uh, and it was bizarre that I have since been in either lifts or in coffee shops. And all everyone's referred to me is nothing to do with either the media speculation about the future of the firm or our <laughs> overall strategy. It's been about the tube line or the fact of my New Year's resolution. So again, I think what you're saying there is isn't necessarily, some of it is how you say it and you've got to get the message out there, but actually it's showing the humanity in terms of the delivery that lands. Mm -hmm. And that is actually about sharing something of yourself, even if it's something as kind of odd as tube lime, but also your news resolution or your story. And if you can get that across and you can create that human connection, then people are more likely to listen to the other stuff better. Okay, so tell me about your New Year's resolution. Oh, God, no, 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 no. Um, yeah, um, that's slightly bizarre, actually. Um, uh, and you can tell I wasn't prepared for it. But no, I've, um, I've got to have an operation in March. Uh, I've got to have one of my hips replaced, um, which I've, been, I've known about for a number of years. And I could do without it if I'm frank, but I know I've got to have it done. And I was talking to the surgeon before Christmas, and I said, go on, you've seen all this, you've done this operation thousands of times. I hope. Um, and um, what's the most successful? What's the formula for the most successful? Uh, and he said, it's kind of fitness level. It's doing the rehab afterwards, which is mainly static bikes, which I don't really like, but he said that's what you do. But most importantly, it's being as light as possible going into it. Right. Yeah. So I've lost a stone so far, and I want to lose another half stone before the 26th of March. So that's why people keep coming up to me and saying, you can't have any cake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. But it's, just, but it's just funny how people remember things. Yeah, yeah. And I wasn't intending to tell anyone I was having the operation. It just kind of they asked me this story, yeah, so I yeah. told the story. Okay, so so um, you, you said you have to communicate things four or five times more than you feel that you need to in order to actually get your message across. Mm. So you've mentioned this kind of town hall idea. Mm. What other ways do you communicate? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously we're in the media a lot. So we'll write letters to the newspapers. So if we're trying to get a message across, as well as telling our staff internally, as well as doing uh, monthly chairman's uh, emails, uh, as well as doing the town halls, we'll also deliberately put messages, do interviews in the media. 
So you're feeding a consistent message in, effectively from a broadsheet. And then obviously you we use the Twitter account quite aggressively. So I've got 5,000 or so followers on Twitter. Probably most people are employees here. And again, that's another way of reaching out. So when we put stories out on Twitter, you know, our reach can regularly be in the millions through Twitter. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so again, so effectively we're using social media at one level. Uh, we're using written media through email. We're using broadsheet through the news media. And then we're using town hall uh, from wider media. And, and then obviously we've got, as you've got a big studio here, we're in one of our studios now. I've got another studio next door for webcasts. So I can do webcasts from that as well. Mm-hmm. But, um, but what we find with webcasts, webcasts are popular, but actually the town halls are more popular because they're stripped bare. And the webcast, I think, sometimes looks probably too formulaic. Yeah, a bit, a bit more structured. A bit more yeah. structured. And, and you've got to do it for certain presentations. So certain presentations, it's more formal, more of an announcement mm-hmm. release. We probably would use a webcast. Yeah. And often with a the webcast, there'll be me and other members of my board or other people, whereas a town hall would be just me chatting and answering questions. Yeah. Pretty free for a free flow. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's um, let's look to the future a bit now because mm-hmm. we're talking about 21st century leadership. When I saw you in Bristol, you were talking about um, d- the disrupted world that we're living in and the need for um, businesses to up the game in terms of social uh, impact and so forth. Give me an idea of what you see as being the key trends that will shape how leadership needs to behave and interact with the people they're leading um, over the next sort of twenty to thirty years, just to keep keep it nice and tight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, no, no one's got a crystal ball. I suppose I would use as my reference point that I say every year we probably recruit eighteen hundred school leavers, graduates, and apprentices. And as a consequence, you know, my partners because we've only got one asset, and that's our people. Uh, we spend a lot of time. We're the biggest graduate recruiter, so we spend a lot of time on campus. And I myself will always go back to my old university in Nottingham once a year, uh, partly to use that as a barometer of what students are talking about, as well as partly showing leadership to my other partners and staff that this thing matters. So it's for two frog. Um, but actually, it's amazing in terms of looking forward. The issues that are on campus now, which are mainly second year students, are the issues that I think will be relevant 20 or 30 years from now. So if if I go over what have been the big themes over the last five years, five years ago, probably the biggest theme was we're not coming to London anymore. What I mean by that, if I was in a room of 400 students, second years, 10 years ago, probably even eight years ago, and I said, where do you expect to work? In the UK, the, the gravitational pull, the aspirational pull of London was very much in the room. Um, and then about three to five years ago, I think I asked the question, less than 70 hands went up when I said, who's going to work in London? And that's for two reasons, or three reasons, really. I think one is that you've got student debt. So that makes London far less affordable than it did for a previous generation. You've got 50,000 student debt. Secondly, London is very expensive in house price. So if you're going to come to London, you probably never afford a house. Or if you do afford a house, it's many years hence, which does affect people's thinking coming out of university. And then thirdly, the cities are cool, I think, from the uh, both the industrial strategy, the mayoralties, the, there's been a rise in civic pride. And if you look at the growth and excitement and energy, not just in the music world, but also entertainment and restaurants and the like in the Birmingham's, Manchester, Liverpool, and Edinburgh. 
And Bristol, yeah, no, but all over the country. I was down in Bristol, say, twice for both the yeah. universities on it. Again, an energy, a development, uh, a, an excitement that probably didn't see in the past. And so, therefore, people, I think, are more willing to move to the region. So, we shifted our recruitment policy. 62% of our graduates this year have been recruited outside of London. So, effectively, we're meeting the talent where it wants to work, which is in our interest as a business and actually in our interest from a cost-based point of view. And also a fastest growing area is private business, and that's all across the country. So it's not diminishing London, but it's meeting the needs. And that, I think, is probably a theme mm-hmm. for the next 30, 40, 40 years of leadership is in terms of, in a way, ask the next generation where they want to work and match your strategy to that, because it's a talent organisation. And then if you go to the more recent conversations over the last couple of years at various universities, um, it's all been about what is the job I can have that will give me a job for life if my long working life is 70 years. And there is no job, because that's the kind of conversation you end up having. But what you end up saying is you've got to work for an organisation that makes the technology available to you from day one that ensures you're a native of that technology three to five years from now so you remain relevant for your next job, career cycle, future. Then I would also overlay on that, you've got to work in an environment, going back to what we said earlier, where reskilling and retraining is part of the DNA because the skills that you start work with will not be the skills you need five years from now in the heart of the fourth industrial revolution. And so they, they were the com- they're the conversations, I would say, of the last two years, talking to students, and they completely get this. Yeah, They completely get, what is the job that gives me, what is the place I go to to give me a job for life? There isn't one. So how do I make sure I'm relevant, not now, but 5, 10, 20 years from now, so I have a career for life, not a job for life? And that also fits, I think, with some of our research. You know, our research says that 7 million jobs in the UK will be lost to blockchain, robotics, and AI, but more than 7 million jobs will be created. So what we mustn't do as a country and an economy is mourn the loss of jobs. We must celebrate the skills of people being retrained for the work of the future. And there's a bit of a danger if you read the media that it's all about jobs being destroyed. Actually, it's not. It's about people being reskilled and retrained. Our challenge as employers and as a country is to ensure that we are at the heart of that retraining to make this the best place to work and have the most effective workforce. And I think key to that is the understanding that when they graduate, they're then just starting their lifelong learning. Yeah, that's right. That's uh, right. And they may have to retrain and reskill you know, every five years for the rest of their lives, or even more frequently, because we see the rate of change accelerating. And that's why I don't think the model, if you go to 100-year life, I don't think the model of educate and work and retire is going to be the model for the future. And again, I think it's the model for leadership. So I think our working, my workforce will be far more transient. I think more part-time, more more kind of multi-job. So they might work for other people as well as you bring skills in. I think it's definitely going to be a part of life because of that transient workforce and that reskilling. People will want more experiences, not less, to ensure they're even more relevant for the future. So I think that you will see, I think, more school leavers. We'll take more school leavers, I think, in the future. And then those school leavers will go to university 
or do an MBA or do their education at different stages of their life as they reskill for their next cycle of experience. So I think you know a, a model of, of the past of 1,800 graduates coming here won't be the model of the future. It'll be a smaller number of graduates with more apprentices, more school leavers alongside them. And those apprentices and school leavers will choose when they go to university at different stages of their life. Now, you, you've got an organisation with an average age of 28. Yep. The population is ageing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know about you, Kevin, but I don't have any plans to retire. I love what I do. So I, I, can, I intend to continue working as long as I'm able. Um, so how do you think you can, as an organisation, accommodate a more diverse age range uh, and capture the wisdom of old people like me. <laughs> no, well, I think I think so. Because of average age, average age twenty eight, don't forget we're a big pyramid, so we have huge variety from both social diversity, gender diversity, BAME, and age inside the organisation. Um, and so, and I think the uh, as we go to more transient workforce, we'll have more people working two day weeks, three day weeks for us, or even um, on. Um, short-term contracts so i think that 28 is probably a reflection just the volume of throughput for the model we have today yeah which goes to the way that i think that model will change and evolve because we will have fewer graduates and school you know we'll have more school leavers more apprentices probably fewer graduates but we'll also have people joining at different times of their lives and going out of work and coming back into work at different points of their life because if you're going to work for 100 years or you're going to have a 100 year life working life of say 70 or 80 years you might take years off at different times of your life. You mm-hmm. might not work, you know, it won't be educate, work, retire. It'll be a mixture of all three throughout that 100-year life. Yeah, yeah. Why wait till you retire to go, go and have a good time? Absolutely. No, no, exactly. <laughs> and I think, and we're seeing that. We are seeing that in terms of the way people do take career breaks more often. That's more of a conversation now than probably was. And we're very flexible. You know, we have... Complete flexible working is one of the things that we measure in our uh, staff surveys all the time, whether people want to work from home, whether they want to work different times, you know, and that that's actually part of our culture, which makes it more attractive, not just for the young people, but for people of all ages. Mm-hmm. And so looking again at this average age, 28, um, these guys are going to be working for a great many years. Mm-hmm. Some of them will continue working with PwC. Mm-hmm. What... What is it that they are looking for from you? Um, I think, again, if you look at our brand, and we're one of the 10 global leading brands in the world, and we're 170 years old, so not many of the other 10 in that cohort have been around as long as us. A lot of them are the kind of tech companies that are pretty much younger in age. And I think it's because we're associated with the integrity and trust that goes with audit. And there's also the fact that we're so associated with learning and training and development. And I think that's what attracts people. So I think the big thing for me is why we'll always attract people of all ages and all backgrounds is that um, we have an economic need to reflect the client base that we want to work for. So we can't be elite. We have to be totally socially diverse in terms of all aspects because we've got to face off the clients and the clients are socially diverse. Mm-hmm. So there's an economic need, not just a societal yeah. need. Um, and it's associated with training. And if you go back to the fourth industrial revolution and everything we spoke about the last time we met, um, the world is more complex and going, the changes in the world are going to happen faster and faster and faster than we've ever seen before. So you want to work for an environment in an environment where the technology 
that you need is available to you and the people are available to you that can help you use that technology. And that kind of fits with our brand. Mm-hmm. So um, as technology changes faster and faster, uh, ways of working change, markets change, social attitudes change. One of the responses to that, which I'm beginning to see quite a lot more of now, is to distribute power much more widely, to distribute Mm. responsibility, and to encourage self-management and self-organisation, which can be quite tricky from a corporate perspective in terms of uh, and particularly for for leaders who are used to mm-hmm. knowing what's going on, mm-hmm. how do they manage that transition to being comfortable with not knowing everything that goes on in the organisation because initiatives are being taken, um, decisions are being made so far removed from where they are that, that they have no actual oversight of it. All they see is the aggregate of the numbers. Um, so... so how do, how do you think yeah, um, really, you should respond point. to that? I, I, see, it, I see it in two forms. One, um, as a society and as an economy, we've become very regulated. Mm-hmm. So the need to, to be, be able regulated. To, yeah, yeah, but the need to be able to evidence the decision-making requires a level of discipline that if it's not got enough oversight, you could fall down the cracks, mm-hmm. you could fail, the consequences are significant, whether you're doing an audit whether you're advising on a technology situation or in a litigious environment. So you've always got to have both the ability to capture what you did and for someone to have oversight of it. That's where blockchain comes in. Exactly. That's where technology comes in. So you don't have to be in a team of five sat in the same office like you would have had to be 20 years ago for that skill and capture and oversight to exist. The other thing I think is whether it's blockchain, AI, robotics, or any other form of technology, technology flattens hierarchy in a way that we have never seen before. And I'll just take a really quick example. You know, if I was putting together a report for a client, which I spent my life doing probably the first 20 years of my career, um, you know, you'd be, if you were in charge of it, you would kind of add, you had a pen, right? You had the, you had editorial control by the <laughs> pen. That pen might have been a pen that changed it and then someone else might have typed it, but you had the pen. And therefore, when one member of your team gave you input to the document that you're pulling together and you've got a pen of, uh, how did you choose which person's work to look at first? You did it by hierarchy. So if you got 20 emails on your system of 20 different inputs to your report, you generally went for the partner first, then the senior manager, then the junior. It's just the way your mind worked. That's how you were kind of brought up. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're using, um, if you like, Google... Uh, our Google Mail system, and you're using the report writer document, everyone can edit that document simultaneously. Yeah. Now, someone has the power of the pen still to oversee and either accept or reject the editorial input. So, but when that document, you're looking at the document on screen, as I will be, I can see the document literally changing in front of my very eyes with the initials of the person changing it. So that has by its very nature, completely flattened hierarchy. So I'm judging the edits and the inputs on the quality, not the grade. And therefore, I've flattened hierarchy in a way. And that was quite frightening for a business like ours with our history and experience and effectively old-fashioned style of working in a way. When that came in, that caused consternation for some people. Even in a simple way, when we went open plan, 
And we probably didn't, went open plan after a lot of other companies. Again, one of the biggest challenges for the more senior people that weren't used to sharing a large desk with members of staff of all grades. That was quite confusing. So both technology is changing the, if you like, the infrastructure of an office in terms of the office construct and making it far more uh, flatter hierarchy because you just sit at a desk. And secondly, technology is changing the hierarchy of how you actually pull the work together for the client. And the third thing, which is really interesting as well, is that same technology is making the team location agnostic. Yeah. And in the past, you probably found a lot of talent coming to London, not because they necessarily want to live in London, but the gravitational pull of the UK and the centrifugal force of London meant more people wanted to be close to the sun. They wanted to be close to the management, to be seen by management, to get themselves progressed. Now, that's less so, because you can be anywhere in the country and you can still be inputting on the technology front through um, Skype, uh, and through other means, as well as through inputs of documents. So I think it is flattening hierarchy, both in terms of the office, but also in terms of the geography of the country, which must be a good thing for the UK. And in, in terms of the actual leadership style, um, you, as we said, we, you, you can't actually lead an organisation sitting behind a computer. So it's great that you can see the documents and see what's going on. But um, <laughs> In an environment where you've got the workforce distributed all over the place, uh, and we talked about actually the town hall meetings and the importance. When when I came in and saw you, you were saying hello to one of the employees as you were walking down the stairs. You know that kind of human contact. How do you create the level of engagement that yeah. that can generate when you've got a distributed? Yeah, workforce? I think. Um, well, I think you have to always. You've got to be aware that you're always watched. If you're in a leadership position. It is, I mean, it's a bit naff to say if you walk to talk, but you, you have to understand you're observed. So, I mean, not to say hello to people that say hello to you or not to acknowledge people. Or even I say to people, you know, never walk around our building on the phone mm-hmm. because it's implying that your call is more important than the person you're walking past, Yeah, which is impolite. So, you know, yes, I might glance at my phone now and again in the lift, but generally try not to because, again, people are watching you. And whatever behaviours you exhibit, you're giving everyone else permission to exhibit the same behaviours. Um, so that is important, whether you're walking down the stairs talking to someone or other. But the other thing, I think, is who, even more so than ever before, is making sure that you know your strengths and you know your limitations and you appoint people around you that are capable of being stronger in the areas that you're weaker so that you have, no no one, you know, look at Belby, no one Myers-Briggs, no one has all the skills, no one ticks ones in all those boxes. Being aware of where you need more strength and making sure you appoint people accordingly, but also you appoint people not only with those, if you like, um, empirical strengths, but they have your values too. So when they're walking around the building, they're behaving in the same way that you would want to be seen to behave because they're observed too. And to some extent, once you've appointed them as a leader, they are carrying your brand. Yeah. So um, basically that leads on to what I was going to talk about next, which was actually about how people progress in the organisation. One of the things I've always noticed and maintained is that people will 
only consistently do behaviours which are which they see are rewarded. So if you have an espoused value in the, in the organisation, but then you promote people on different criteria, then that value means nothing. No, yeah, it's a good point. So I'd say that the only long-term competitive advantage for any organisation is culture. There'll be a new product along, there'll be a new brand along, there'll be a new event along. But if you've got the strongest culture, that's the only long-term, effectively uh, long-term uh, advantage. I think the other thing that um, really uh, I believe kind of goes alongside that is, um, and it's a phrase actually Professor Gareth Jones once said, show me the pay structure and I'll tell you whether your strategy is being executed. Mm-hmm. So you've got your culture, you've got your strategy, you've got to make sure that the way you reward people is consistent with both of those. Otherwise, you'll never have execution of that strategy. And it's really easy to start talking about strategy and we talk about strategy, I think, sometimes too much. For me, it's all about execution. And the execution comes home very much with the culture and the reward. Because, again, and people are rewarded in different ways. It's not just financial. Exactly. You know, fun enough, we brought in a system recently called GEMS, where you formally give out points to members of staff if they do good things. But what's really interesting in it is that it's totally transparent to all members of staff who's been rewarded and why. Mm-hmm. And you cannot imagine how excited people are about this. You cannot believe how much interest there is in who I've rewarded for what or who anyone else has rewarded for what. So it just shows you that it's not all about financial. In our kind of world, recognition matters for so much. So again, for that strategy to be executed with the right culture and values, you have to have that reward. And that reward comes in a financial form, but it comes in a promotion form, and it comes in a recognition form. And all three actually are equally important. Yeah, and and I think that also works in the way of um, when people get recognition, and when you call out the the good behaviours, that first of all gives gives reinforces them, them. Yeah, yeah, reinforces. Re- reinforces it with them, but also it, it helps other people to understand what accepted and, and what applauded behaviour looks like within the organisation. And you can use that to kind of build a narrative and build stories about so and so did this and this. That, that that was just so PwC. You know that, that's mm. what we're about. Um, do you have a PwC way? That, you know, there's PwC values uh, yeah, and as yeah. culture. And it's interesting on the values we. Uh, we actually voted on them mm-hmm. in all three theatres of the world, so Asia, Europe, and Americas. Mm-hmm. And I think probably the one that surprised me the most was that we've got 240,000 people in our network in the world. Um, 90,000 people voted for care. And I don't think care as a word, and in Asia particularly, you would have thought that would have been voted on. Mm-hmm. And that was voted on, so one of the five values. And that whole idea of kind of looking after each other in today's world, I think, is increasingly important. I think it's quite important, actually, when you kind of link up the values and the culture of an organisation. Uh, and then you look at something like uh, the Trust Index from Edelman. Mm-hmm. Last time round, at the end of January, when the Edelman Trust Survey came out, the barometer of trust that was rated the highest was employers. I think it really reflects that there's a lack of trust in social media, there's a lack of trust in the wider media, but there is a trust in the people that you work with. And again, that puts both an opportunity, but a responsibility on people like myself doing the job we're doing in terms of how you communicate and how you share and how you how you exercise the values and the culture that you put in place. It matters more. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think care is is pretty universal, actually. Um, so I'm I'm not entirely surprised at that. Um, my my personal three are care, courtesy, respect. You know, when you mm. when you're working with with people, that's how you treat one another. Mm. It's almost a, a given. Um, so, so having mentioned care, I see see that you've got a well-being centre and all that. Mm. Um, what does your organisation do to ensure the um, mental health of your very interesting people? point? No, this is a very interesting point. So we work very closely with the Samaritans, um, and we have a number of partners that have been trained using the Samaritans model uh, and they're all people are part of green light to talk but mm-hmm. what we particularly have found with these uh, effectively um, kind of mental health ambassadors is they're publicly known that they exist and on a kind of uh, any member of staff can come in and speak to them at any time and talk about issues and you'll be amazed at how many interventions they've had to make again mm-hmm. if you go to the cohort of people I employ the stressful lives people lead and the age range, they are actually all in the kind of, what Samaritans will tell you, absolutely in the hot spot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and one of the biggest learnings that come out of this uh, was um, we made a video with Samaritans that we've made available um, through digital media to all companies in the UK. We paid half, and Samaritans paid half. And it was a kind of a true story about uh, a mental health incident that thankfully ended well Uh, and the reason it ended well was the ability and the bravery of an individual to intervene one of the biggest problems i think with mental health is that if you like both the stigma and the fear that if you talk about it it might cause something bad to happen and therefore why we made the video the way we did and network rail did it first for their because they had a, a huge number of suicides uh, with a massive cost, actually, a, a year for them, as well as the personal cost on the train drivers and those involved. Yeah. And their biggest understanding and the biggest learning that the Samaritans, when they worked with them, identified was that people didn't want to go near someone that was walking near the track in case they were the cause of the person to jump. I mean, that sounds pretty blunt. It sounds pretty callous to say it, but that's how people thought. But what they found was by talking to them, so you stop something bad happening. So we've brought the same kind of learning into the office context, kind of white collar, which is how our video has been set up. And the second video we made was how you help people understand the value and power of listening skills mm-hmm. in the mental health context. Um, and when we did all this, and we did it uh, because of, you know, we felt a need to do it, it was the right thing to do for our people. Uh, and we were encouraged because a number of members of the staff at senior levels who were Samaritans who said it was the right thing to do, we did it. A number of partners, if I'm honest with you, didn't question it, but were quite unsure as to why you'd be doing it from a business point of view. You know, it's another cost. There's loads of other things going on in the world. Is it the right thing to do? And two events happened to me personally last summer that I've used to explain it to, if you like, the people that were unsure is the right thing to do. But the first one was um, we have, as I said, you know, 1,800 graduates and the school leavers apprentices join us. And we have kind of a couple of very big days when 600 people join at once. And it's quite humbling to stand there on the stage in front of 600 people having their very first day at work. <laughs> the one thing you'll always remember, Brett, as I will, and everyone else, will, everyone remembers their first day at work. And I always say the same lines and I always say to them, if you look around your table now, I promise you, you'll remember at least four of those people 20 years from now. But I can't tell you which four. So that always causes everyone to kind of look around the table, imagining that yeah, they're still yeah. known 20 years from now. But it does happen. It's very true. And every time I say that story, a number of people afterwards tell me stories 
you said that to me on my first day and I've been here 10 years and I still know most of my table. So it's funny how it resonates. Anyway, yeah. you do a QA and a at this and the Q&A is quite enlightening. It's a bit like doing the Q&A on the milk round at universities because there are no parameters. There are no boundaries to the questions. When people have been in the firm for a while, they're generally wary of their peer group. They're wary of kind of um, social norms in terms of the questions they'll ask, particularly the chairman. Anyway, last time round, uh, a lady at the back, very last question of the day, just before I finished, after my hour, said, what are you doing to help remove the stigma of mental health as an organisation? And it was really interesting. I, it was an easy question to answer because I told you what I answered. But more importantly, this shows you how much it matters to that cohort that we're recruiting that someone felt it was important to ask the chairman that question, not in private one-to-one, but in front of 599 of their peers that had just joined the organisation. And the reaction in the room told me that everyone thought that was a normal question. Mm-hmm. I can promise you 10 years ago, I've never been asked that question. Absolutely. Never. It would not have come up. People would have been uncomfortable with what it said about them to ask a question like that. So that shows you that, A, that society's changing, but also it tells you if you're going to recruit top talent in today's world, if you're not doing this, the top talent won't join you. And the second story was I was literally uh, walking along the corridor and a young chap came and stopped me and he said, just so you know, uh, I've been here six months and in my family, unfortunately, we've had issues with mental health. And when I was choosing the organisation to join, I read about what you were doing and that was the reason I chose your organisation. And I just wanted to tell you that I've been here six months and you've completely overachieved against that kind of barometer I set or that he said everything you're doing I'm really impressed with and I wondered when I came here whether it was kind of selling skills on your part or whether it was really happening and I'm really pleased I joined you for because it matters to me and my family and again those stories tell tells you that at the end of the day we only have one asset it's our people and if you want to recruit and retain the best possible people then you've got to be dealing with the issues and helping with the issues that matter to them and this mm-hmm. matters absolutely so it's not only a societal need it's an economic one as well. Yeah, and so, so that's what you would say to other leaders who are a bit reticent about taking this on board. Yeah, uh, we have um, got any other every month. For every, every month, every month, I chair a CEOs and chairmen's dinner, probably for about fifteen or so chairmen and CEOs, and we talk about a different topic. And I kind of choose the topic, not randomly, but relatively randomly. It's the last time I had uh, uh, Mark Rowley, who used to be the head of anti-terrorism in the UK talking about some of the challenges um, with basically managing an anti-terrorism team in terms of leadership, but also in terms of making the streets safer. So just as an example, he spoke about that. And last year, I also had Ruth Sutherland, who's the CEO of the Samaritans, at a dinner alongside two top psychiatrists who deal with mental illness, alongside all the CEOs and chairmen. And they didn't know that was the dinner topic we were going to talk about. Uh, and we talked about it openly. Uh, I've got to say the first 10 minutes was relatively stilted. because People were a little bit uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But it's fascinating after that, the number of people that shared not just corporate experiences, but personal experiences mm. openly amongst other CEOs uh, was incredibly brave. And both Ruth and the two people from uh, the medical profession that were there were amazed. And they'd never been to a dinner like it. But a number of very senior chairmen said afterwards, you know, it shows you how the world's changed if we're willing to come to a dinner like that and talk as openly as we did. He said, I've got a lot of respect for everyone that was there, but also a lot of hope for society. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I, I did my mental health first aid training a couple of months ago. Right. And I have to say, I felt that it gave me real insights into um, how how I'm driven in, in stressful situations and more importantly, how others might be um, driven in stressful situations. So I think for organisations where you know you are operating in a very often stress, stressful environment, it's a real benefit to to people to be able to have that kind of training. Because one of the concepts that I loved was this idea that you have a stress container and it kind of fills up and up and up. And then you have to have some kind of mechanism for stopping it from overflowing. Some some people, they, they might get to the point where they self-harm. Others people might kind of um, blow up with a loved one because that's a safe environment to do that. But the important thing that we understand then is that it's not that thing that's tipped us over the edge that's important. It's the, all the other things that filled up that stress container. So you can use that as an organisation to, to start to understand what are the real stresses that you can take out so that these little things mm. don't cause a disproportionate reaction. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think you say it's a bit like Steve Peters' chin paradox. And yeah, like yeah, Very yeah. similar in terms of that filling up. Yeah. Uh, methodology. I think it's interesting as well, and I agree. And I think sometimes it's our responsibility to avoid that because I think with that you can end up with some loads of other negatives, like bullying, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And you know, an environment that probably was more associated with the seventies and eighties than the world we're in now. But certainly, those two things do come with stress. They aren't necessarily people misbehaving; they're caused often by stress. So by taking it out. You benefit everyone yeah. in the 360, not mm-hmm. just the individual. And the other interesting thing we've found very, very helpful is having people both do lunch and learns, but also videoing stories about their mental health journey and how they overcame either eating disorders or suicidal thoughts or self-harm. And when those people telling those stories are in very senior positions, either on the board or just off the board, Again, that helps, I think, the stress situation by other people seeing that they're not alone. Mm-hmm. And I think the whole thing of not being alone is a really important part of the healing process in mental health. Yeah. And the fact that it's okay to talk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Destigmatizing. Yeah. 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 Cool. How are we doing for time, Emma? We are, well, you've been talking for about 45 minutes. Oh, right. Okay. So um, perhaps we're reaching right. time, yeah. time to wrap up. Um Something I really was interested to ask you about, because we're talking here about the next generation of leaders, um, what are the skills that that they need to develop, what are the changes changes in the operating operating environment that they're going to need to be adapting to. Um, so these guys are going to at some point take over from you um, in the in the distant future when you decide that it's time to to, to hand on to something else. Um, what what do you want your legacy to be? What kind of organisation do you want to pass over? It's really interesting being in a partnership because yeah. we're not a corporate. Mm-hmm. So this so this firm's 170-odd years old and uh, it's about handing the business on to the next generation. Every single decision we make, I think as a board or I make as a leader, is about ensuring that our business can hand on the baton to the next generation. So legacy is absolutely at the heart both of our strategy, but also of our day-to-day kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for me, and this is an elected post, so this actually, you get elected this role through secret ballot and hustings and manifesto. So you can't select your successor. Your job is to make sure that there are enough talented people that are acceptable 
to the partners to select from for their next leader. And I think for that, I think leadership goes in eras. So the style that's right for today, I suppose if I was elected, must be my style. That might not be the right style for the next generation. So you've got to make sure that the cohort that you're encouraging, nurturing, and giving the opportunity to are suitably differentiated so that partners have a fair choice of selecting the leader for whatever the world is that we're going into, you know, four or five years from now. And that, if you like, so that's my responsibility. We have a governance body who are kind of like shareholder representatives of the partnership. And I regularly talk to them about that, the kind of skills that I'm nurturing, I'm encouraging, and I'm selecting in my board and people around me to give them the experience and the profile Mm -hmm. to be in the right position to succeed. What you can't do is say it should be Fred or Joe or Harry or sure. you know Shirley. It can't be someone you selected because I think that's wrong. It's got to be a partnership selection of nine hundred partners deciding that that person's values and skills are right for the generation that goes on in the future. That won't be the right. My, I'm different to my predecessor, and he'd have been different to his predecessor, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay. So, Kevin, can you tell me what the skills are that you're nurturing in? The next generation of leaders. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, look, at the end of the day, it's a business. At the heart of everything we do, it's a business. So you have to have entrepreneurial skills. And I think it's a fast evolving business. So you've got to be, I think, willing to take risks and be innovative. And at the heart of all of that is the fourth industrial revolution. So you have to be willing to understand or at least be willing to put people around you that understand the power of technology, data, and digital, because otherwise you'll be irrelevant. And all of that is underlaid with the right values. And I think in today's world, communication skills, whatever communication medium you're using to get your message across. Because again, the de- leader sitting behind a desk won't necessarily likely get voted in in our world. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. Thanks, Kevin. Brilliant. I think that's Thanks a good place to wrap it up. So great. Nice thank you very break. much for, for your time and Cheers. for your... That's Your fun. insights as well. Thank you, right. Cheers. Brilliant. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Cool. Emma. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Nice. Lovely. That was very cool. briefly. Nice. nice to see you, mate. That was good. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Oh, well. That was great. Good, good to see you. That was great fun. Yeah. Lovely. Nice. Well, let me know how to get on. We'll, we'll do. Yeah. Good. Super. Amazing how fast that went. I know. Yeah. It was very good. How time flies when you enjoy yourself. Exactly. Talk about myself to Well, yes, it was great fun. And I was stunned by just how much PwC has embraced new ways of working. Town hall meetings making the business location agnostic, embracing diversity, using technology to flatten the hierarchy, and encouraging care and mental well-being. If you haven't already done so, I'd also recommend that you go back and listen to episode one. Uh, You don't want to miss out on that. And now looking ahead to next time, we'll be leaving the 20th century far behind, as I'll be with John Knights and Danielle Grant delving into what it means to lead beyond the ego. I'll catch up with you then. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the topics raised in this podcast, or if you'd like to discuss other aspects of leadership development and business strategy, just send an email to podcast at ukleadershipacademy.com. I look forward to hearing from you.